today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. One of the great influencers as an abolitionist was William Wilberforce, who was a parliamentarian in the British Parliament, and he used his influence in government to end the slave trade. But it was because he was a Christian who was coming at the world through the lens of Christianity and realizing that, that this was an inhumane thing, and it was really Christianity was the impetus for doing away with slavery in our own modern history. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Philemon. The Bible condones slavery. Unfortunately, this outlandish claim is something that we as believers hear the world repeat on a regular basis as an attempt to discredit our faith. However, with a little diligent research, one can easily conclude that it's quite the contrary. In today's message, Pastor Gary gives us a small history lesson to better help us understand the context of Paul's letter to Philemon, a slave owner. In his study, you'll learn that while slavery was and still is a cultural norm, it was actually the Christian worldview that led to abolition on a grand scale. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Philemon, chapter 1, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. You will turn in your Bibles to the book of uh, Philemon. No, it is not Philemon. It is not Philemon. It is Philemon. We are going to begin tonight a six-part series in the book of Philemon. I'm kidding. I... Some of you are like, what? It's 25 verses, friends. We'll, we'll get through this tonight, Lord willing. Okay. A one-week, one-night series in the book of Philemon. Are you awake now? All right. So I'm going to give a bit of an introduction to the book of Philemon, and uh, in some ways the introduction might be as long as the book study itself. But just by way of background, uh, this, this book was written by Paul uh, while imprisoned in Rome to Philemon. The year is around 61 A.D. Now, what we're going to find... When you read the, the letter to Colossae, when you le- read Colossians and you read Philemon, what we find is that these are companion epistles. And, and Colossians, Paul wrote the same time, delivered it through the same people, uh, Tychicus and Onesimus. But Colossians is written to the church at Colossae, and Philemon is written to one particular individual who attended, who was a part of the church at Colossae. And, and so this is the shortest and most personal of Paul's epistles. And it, this is unique in that this is the one epistle where Paul is writing to an individual, Philemon, and not to the church in general. Again, Colossians is his letter to the church. 
Philemon is his letter to one particular individual. And as it, as it goes, according to the providence of God, uh, God determined that this letter nevertheless should make it into the, the completed canon of Scripture. That even though this was originally written to one individual, that the, the intent and the meaning and the purpose and, and the richness of this letter is intended for all of us such that God determined that this should be included in the canon of Scripture. So it's almost like we're reading uh, what amounts to be almost a postcard more, more than a letter uh, that, that is from one individual to another, but, but by inspiration of the Holy Spirit nonetheless and important for us to understand in terms of its overall uh, significance. This letter concerns, not Philemon, it concerns Onesimus, who is a runaway slave of Philemon's, who apparently also stole money uh, from Philemon. And and so what we're going to find is that Onesimus, this runaway slave, makes his way to where Paul is in Rome, and Colossae is in Turkey. He's going to travel about a thousand miles to go to where Paul is. We don't have any background as to how Onesimus necessarily knows Paul or knew that Paul was there in prison. Perhaps he recognized that, that Paul is a man of grace, and so when he's doing something like fleeing from uh, his owner and having stolen from his owner, he's going to go to somebody who maybe will be forgiving and gracious to him. But we don't know how they end up meeting up. Uh, Onesimus is also mentioned at the end of Colossians chapter 4, and so Paul has a familiarity with him, but we just don't have any background as to how they really came to know each other. Now, because, and, and I, I gave you a warning in advance, the introduction might be as long as the Bible study itself, but because Onesimus was a slave, Philemon was the slave owner, I think it's important for us to get a little background on first century slavery in the Roman Empire too, just so that we can get context and appreciate some of the overall theme that God is intending us for, under, for us to understand. So just a few bullet points about slavery in first century Roman Empire. First, there were approximately 16 million slaves in the Roman Empire. That represents about 25% of the population of the Roman Empire in the first century. Now, you know, I, the statistics vary. You read different historians. Some say as little as 10%, but any percent is too much. Uh, 10% to as much as 40%. Um, so we're kind of striking in the middle of historians and, and saying roughly 25% of the population of the Roman Empire, some 65 million plus people uh, in the empire at the time, were slaves. So that roughly translates to about 16 million slaves. And Rome's economic system was largely dependent on the slave labor. They had gotten used to it. And so Rome's economic system largely depended on the slave labor. Slaves were either acquired, and that is generally through warfare, where uh, instead of uh, uh, killing everybody that they would defeat, they took as prisoners of war uh, soldiers that they would then make as slaves. Uh, and, and also, as part of warfare, when people die, children are orphaned. And so a lot of times then... Orphaned children would be taken into the Roman Empire as part of slaves. Uh, but you could also sell yourself into slavery if you owed a debt. And sometimes in, in the first century, people would sell their children. They'd keep their own freedom. It's, kind of, it's a very harsh and abusive 
you know, any form of slavery is harsh and abusive. But when you, when you think about, you know, how parents would preserve their own freedom, but if they owed a debt, they'd sell their, their children into slavery. So that's, that's kind of the background. It differed, you know, again, slavery is, all forms are wrong. It's man's inhumanity to man. But it differed from more of what we're familiar with in, from 16th to 19th century that plagued American history, British history, um, where slavery was predominantly based on race. Uh, that wasn't really the case in first century Roman Empire, but nevertheless, uh, it, it is still inhumane. And along those lines of inhumanity, slaves had no rights. They were considered property of the owners until such time that they could purchase their freedom or were granted freedom by their owners. And slaves often served in professional roles. And many educated slaves were members of imperial bureaucracy. So um, you would often find that slaves served as hairdressers, messengers, accountants, tutors, uh, secretaries, carpenters. Some had even high job status and were trained and educated as doctors and and architects, uh, as managers. In fact, in your Bibles, Luke, who wrote two books, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, Luke, uh, we know, was a slave, and he was a physician, and he was probably a slave to the one that he addresses both epistles to, both letters to, a Theophilus. So, he, so Theophilus was probably the owner of Luke, and Luke was a physician who was a slave, uh, an indentured servant who, who served Theophilus. So uh, this is the kind of makeup of slavery in, in first century Roman Empire. And I give you that background because, again, we're, we're talking here, this particular letter has everything to do with slavery. Onesimus is a slave, Philemon is the owner, and Paul is going to really challenge Uh, Philemon. He's going to challenge Onesimus too. He's going to make Onesimus own up to what he's done wrong as far as like uh, stealing from from his owner. Uh, And there's going to be some restitution or there's going to be some some healing. But uh, but Paul is going to confront uh, what is the standard of the day in terms of how accepted in the first century slavery was. And Paul's going to challenge that thinking. Now, there are two main themes of the book of Philemon, uh, and one of them has to do with what we've been discussing up to this point, equality. One has to do with equality. Um, You know, look, Christianity is the great equalizer. In fact, as it relates to this issue of slavery, uh, even though, again, slavery would continue historically, and, and in some parts of the world today, still, slavery exists, unfortunately, um, but, but one of the things that turned the tide for slavery in our own more recent history between the 16th and 19th century was, in fact, Christianity. And, of course, if you know some of your histories, one of the great influencers as an abolitionist was William Wilberforce, who was a parliamentarian in the British Parliament, and he used his influence in government to end the slave trade. But it was because he was a Christian who was coming at the world through the lens of Christianity and realizing that, that this was an inhumane thing. And it was really Christianity was the impetus for doing away with slavery in our own modern history. Um, you know, when, when um, John Newton 
got saved and wrote the great hymn, the most famous of all hymns, which is Amazing Grace, you know, John Newton was a slave trader. But when he got saved, and it didn't happen immediately, it didn't happen overnight, but he began after a few years realizing, as a Christian, I can no longer engage in the slave trade industry. And then he writes Amazing Grace as a testimony of how he was saved, though a wretch. And, you know, I love one of the best quotes of John Newton near the end of his life in his 80s. And he said, my mind is nearly gone, but two things I can remember, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. And it was Christianity. In fact, John Newton encouraged William Wilberforce stay in the parliament. Wilberforce, when he became a Christian, was like, I, I, I feel this conflict with my Christian values and government, you know, and serving in government. And sometimes that can be a conflict. And it was actually John Newton who encouraged Wilberforce, you stay in the parliament and you make a difference. And, you know, and as it relates to politics and government, we can either make a difference you know, even in our own country, by exercising the vote or being a part of running for office so we can influence it from within. We're influencing it from within or from without, but we need to exercise our Christian values as part of influencing our culture because in the 1800s, a guy like William Wilberforce, and you have guys like Charles Haddon Spurgeon who were preaching against the evils of slavery, and then it translates later into American culture and Lincoln and, and all that happened, but it was really, you know, the quake and it was, it was even Christianity in America that turned the tide against slavery. So I share all this because um, as much as you know, our hearts hopefully are, are gripped with the evil of slavery, it, it's also Christianity that became the impetus and the reason for the abolition of slavery, uh, really uh, um, in, insofar as um, it, we've been able to touch different parts of the world uh, through, through our, our relationship with Christ. And so equality is a big theme in the Bible. You know that, and in fact, Paul would write in Galatians, you don't need to turn there, but Galatians 3, uh, 26, he says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, Gentile, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, Male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And he adds, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we're all heirs, we're all equal, we're all valued in God's eyes. And even though slavery was a predominant thing in the first century Roman Empire, you might wish for the Bible to just condemn it more than it does. But, but what what began to happen was Christianity unraveled it from within because as people uh, got saved, they saw the evil of it. And, and so even though the Bible doesn't often preach hard against it, what it says is you, when you become a Christian, your eyes will be open to what's wrong in your world. And you'll begin to change things uh, because of your own conviction and values. And, and so up until that happens... Often what we see in the Bible as it relates to slavery in the first century is, as a Christian, then, if you find yourself as a slave, you got to make the best of your situation. And if you find yourself as a slave owner, you, you better come to grips with the fact that this is the wrong treatment of another human being. And you're going to find in this letter here that Paul challenges Philemon. He's going to say, now listen, as far as equality goes, you've got a new brother now. Because Onesimus is going to get saved when he visits Paul. And so Paul's going to send him back. He says, I want you to consider Onesimus no longer as a slave. You know, don't be a slave owner. 
And in fact, he says, I want you to consider him now as a dear brother, because Christianity levels the playing field and is the great equalizer. By the way, uh, one of our great Christmas carols that we often sing is O Holy Night. And O Holy Night was first written in 1847 in French. And in 1855, it was translated into English by a guy by the name of John Sullivan Dwight. And uh, Dwight, in the third verse of O Holy Night, as we sing it every Christmas time, you, you, you might have missed, if, you, if, you, if you're not careful, the language, because Dwight was an, uh, a strict abolitionist. And so in penning the, the song and translating it into English, in verse 3, the chorus goes like this. Truly he taught us, that's the Lord, to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains he shall break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we. With all our hearts we praise his holy name. And that was even before the Civil War. It was 1855 when that hymn was, was first translated into English. And Dwight took a little liberty with the French to make, it more, to, to make it stronger against slavery. But just talking about how in Christ, the slave is our brother. And, and may he break the chains of, of slavery as, as we pray for all oppression to cease. Okay. The other theme is forgiveness. It's equality and it's about forgiveness. Because Onesimus has done wrong in that he has stolen from Philemon. And, and at least insofar as the laws of first century go, he did wrong in running away. We understand why he would run away, but insofar as the laws of, at the time, he ran away and he stole from Philemon. So Paul is going to address with Onesimus the need to ask for forgiveness. And he's going to address with Philemon the need to forgive. Forgive this guy. Take him back. Love him. Treat him as a brother, not as a slave. So these are the two great themes of the book of Philemon. Now, when we get through it, again, it's only 25 verses. Don't tune out because at the end, I want to, I want to make two applications that I think are very important for us to understand about the book of Philemon. So when we get to verse 25, don't be like, oh, he's going to let us out early. No, not in your life. <laughs> I did it like one time, you know, like weeks ago. So, you know, okay. So here we go. Verse 1. He says, Paul a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Notice he's a prisoner in Rome, but he knows it's not really Rome I'm a prisoner to. I'm a voluntary prisoner of Christ Jesus. And Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, interestingly, Paul writes 13 different epistles. Nine out of the 13 times, he opens up the epistle by talking about how he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He does not assert his apostolic authority in this letter. I mean, he's going to infer it a little further down when he says, you know, I could make you do this if I wanted to, but I'm not. I'm, not, I'm going to suggest that you take him back and love him. But he opens this letter not as Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, but Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, because he's going to appeal to Philemon on the basis of Paul having a heavy heart, not a heavy hand. 
Paul's coming across to him as a fellow brother saying, listen, as a brother, I want you to do something. I'm going to ask you a big favor as it relates to Onesimus here. I'm going to ask you a big favor here. So he comes across with a heavy heart, not with a heavy hand. Doesn't assert his apostolic authority, not at the the beginning here. And he addresses this to Philemon. He calls him a dear friend, a fellow worker, and verse 2 to Aphia. Now you can circle that name. It's a woman. He says our, our sister. And most Bible scholars believe that she is Philemon's wife. We don't know for sure, but that's what most believe. And that Archippus, somebody else mentioned in the, in the salutation here, is probably Philemon's son. And, and Archippus is also mentioned in Colossians chapter 4. And it is likely that he's a leader in the church at Colossae to some degree. Because in Colossians chapter 4 verse 17... Paul says about Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. Okay, that coupled with how Archippus is mentioned here in Philemon verse 2 as our fellow soldier, it's an indication that he's also in ministry of some kind. And, And to the church that meets in your home. Now, the early Christian church did not have a building. Okay, now we're talking those who, you know, were, were Jews who believed in Jesus and those who were Gentiles who believed in Jesus. Okay, well, Gentiles can't go into a strict Orthodox synagogue, so they're, they're going to have to start to build churches. And as, and as the early church began to grow, they would eventually have buildings, have churches to have worship services in. But for the first roughly uh, three centuries, two and a half centuries or so, uh, there were no church buildings. Uh, Not until about 250 A.D. do we have a record of the first Christian church buildings. So in the first uh, nearly three centuries, the early church would meet in homes. That is not a pattern. I know some people are like, you know, the, the most purest, pristine form of church is just home church. Not really. Um, that's, that's how it was out of necessity for the first few centuries. But then from, from year 250 A.D. on, you see church buildings springing up as a place of common worship. But at the moment, the church of Colossae is meeting in, their, in Philemon's home. And, and so he addresses them at the beginning of this letter, and he adds in verse 3 his common greeting, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's often grace and peace. These are the common uh, Greek and Hebrew uh, greetings. Charis in the Greek for grace and shalom in the Hebrew for peace. And it's always in that order, just like grace and truth appears in your New Testament in that order. It's never truth and grace, and it's never peace and grace. You can't have peace or truth until you first have grace. Grace always takes the lead. When you know the grace of God, then you know the peace of God, and you can know the truth of God. But grace always takes the lead. And he says in verse 4 to them, he says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love, and that is the word agape, the highest, most supreme kind of love, and your love for all the saints. The New Testament letter of Philemon is a short book to study, but the message of forgiveness is powerful. 
It also points you to the grace given as forgiveness for everyone's sins by the blood of Jesus. Everyone knows what it feels like to be wronged, and Jesus was no exception. He faced rejection and ridicule during his time on earth, yet he still chose to go to the cross. He died for wrongs he hadn't committed, wrongs that had been done against him and would be throughout time. Jesus' blood shed on that day is enough to forgive you. Have you accepted Jesus' sacrifice for your sins? If not, today is a great day to do this. We'd love to pray with you. So please give us a call at 703-771-1500. That number again is 703-771-1500. We'd like to encourage you to find and begin regularly attending a Bible teaching church as well. If you're in the Leesburg area, you're welcome to join us here at Cornerstone Chapel. We gather each Sunday and Wednesday to explore God's Word and worship Him together. And we spend time getting to know each other better. You'll find all the information you need at cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know 